All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll read verses 4 to 10 this morning, but we'll focus on verses 6 to 10. Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll begin reading in verse 4. There the word of Christ says this. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking that you might... Lord, grant to us a greater confirmation of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, of its benefits and its blessings, Lord, of its superiority over all others. Lord, that we might see that in drawing near to you through him, in coming before him as our great high priest, there is indeed salvation for sinners. Lord, there is rest for weary souls. So, Father, may you continue to help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, help us to see and understand that he is the only mediator that can reconcile sinners to a holy God. So that we who have fled to him for refuge might have an even greater confidence, Lord, that we might have an even more sure and stable anchor for our soul. Lord, a hope that passes within the veil where our Lord and Savior is. So, Lord, bless us today. Lord, teach us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, the apostle is ultimately comparing and contrasting the priesthood of Jesus Christ to the priesthood of the family of Aaron. Right? That is his ultimate goal and the ultimate issue at, at hand. Is Aaron's priesthood superior, or is Jesus' priesthood superior? Right? That is the question he is seeking to answer. If Aaron's priesthood is superior, then we should follow him. We should seek out for ourselves a priest from the tribe of Levi who can serve as a mediator between God and us. And we ought to submit to those ordinances and laws that govern the worship of God under the administration of the old covenant. If, on the other hand, Jesus' priesthood is superior, then we ought to follow him. We should no longer go to any man but to only one man, the man Christ Jesus, who should serve as mediator between God and us. And we ought to submit ourselves to the ordinances and laws governing the worship of God's people as instituted by Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Right? We have to understand that these two things always go together, and we'll see this as we go along throughout this passage. The priesthood and the laws governing the worship, those are always a package deal. Aaron's priesthood was accompanied with a law that prescribed how the people were to worship God. Jesus' priesthood is accompanied with a new law that prescribes how people are to worship God. Look at verse 12. Hebrews 7, 12. When the priesthood is changed of necessity, 
there takes place a change of law also. So should we follow Aaron's priesthood and the laws associated with it, or should we follow Jesus's priesthood and the laws associated with it? That is what he is seeking to establish. Which priesthood is superior and what rules govern the worship of the church? And this dilemma can be easily resolved if it can be shown and proven that one priesthood is superior to the other. And that is the task at hand. A clear display of the supremacy of Jesus, his priesthood, and the laws of worship of the new covenant over and above Aaron, his priesthood, and the laws of worship that accompanied the old covenant. And it must be one or the other. It cannot be both Jesus and Aaron. If one goes to Jesus, he must renounce and let go of Aaron. And if one continues to go to Aaron, then he cannot have Jesus Christ as his high priest. So this is indeed a matter of life and death. The salvation of these people and the salvation of us is contingent upon a recognition and a submission to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We must be convinced, we must have full assurance that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to Aaron or any other priesthood and that he and he alone is the only one who can serve as a mediator between God and man that can reconcile us to God and who can offer sacrifices that can actually accomplish the atonement of our sins. This is what he is proving because here the people are going between these two opinions. They are reluctant to give up Aaron and to cling only to Christ. So he must show by necessity the certainty of Christ. And the way he's doing this in this passage is in this interaction that took place between Melchizedek and between Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. That is how he is proving the superiority of Christ over Aaron. So let's go back to Hebrews 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 6 today. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 6. It says, But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. We remember in verse 5 that there he established this rule or this law, this obvious aspect of the law of Moses, that those who were priests from the tribe of Levi had a commandment in the law. There was a provision made in the law of Moses for them to collect a tithe from their brethren, even their brethren who were equally descended from Abraham. Though the priests from Levi were equally children of Abraham with the rest of the tribes, an Israelite from Judah was every bit as much a child of Abraham and had every bit as much in the promise that was made to Abraham as an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. Yet because of the office of priest, the Israelite from Judah or any of the other tribes was obligated under the law to pay a tithe to the Israelite from the tribe of Levi who was a priest. And this was designed not only so that the priestly ministry would be supported, but also to show the dignity, the honor associated with the office of priest. The people paid homage to this office, to those who possessed this office, by paying a tithe to them, though all of them were brethren descended from Abraham. It was their way of showing the superiority of the priest in terms of his rank and in terms of his access to the things of God. Because there were certain privileges and blessings granted to the priests that were not experienced 
by the people at large. They could the temple. They could not burn uh, incense on the altar of incense. They could not go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood there on the mercy seat. That was given only to the priest. And the people recognized this distinction by paying a tithe to them, that they were of superior rank in terms of their access and their handling of the things of God, even though all of them were equally descended from Abraham. Well, this is what he is showing. This truth, this reality of the priest from the tribe of Levi and its connection to Melchizedek. And so he is proving that Melchizedek is superior to Levi because of his superiority that is over Abraham. And here, in verse 6, he establishes a first proof of his superiority in his person, right? In who he is. Notice he says there, concerning Melchizedek, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them. Here, he's talking about Melchizedek, who as a high priest did not derive his legitimacy to serve as high priest from a genealogy that was traced from Abraham and then also from Aaron. He received a tithe, not because of a law that was established for him to have this right given to him by a pedigree or by a heritage or by a genealogy, where this genealogy was invoked and it was on the basis of this genealogy that he received this tithe. That's how it worked with the tribe of Levi, with the priests from the tribe of Levi. It was their connection, this law of physical requirement that gave them this right, this privilege to receive a tithe from their brothers. No other Israelites had the right to the tithe. The tribe of Judah did not, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Ephraim or Manasseh or any of the other tribes. Only the law was given, the law was given only to the priests from the tribe of Levi. The others could not demand that their brothers pay a tithe to them, and they could not legitimately receive this tithe from others. Only the priests from the tribe of Levi received it, and this is because of what the law stated. It was based upon this law of physical requirement or a law of physical descent. A genealogy of the priest was essential to be established for him to receive this tithe. But this is not the case with Melchizedek. He received the tithe not on the basis of a law that was established by Moses at Mount Sinai. He received it not on the basis of a genealogy or on the basis of some heritage or physical descent. He received the tithe by way of a special provision made by God before the law was instituted and it was above the law. Before the law and above the law, Melchizedek received a tithe and he received it legitimately because God gave him this right. His right to receive a tithe from Abraham was greater than the right that the priest had from the tribe of Levi to receive a tithe from the people. And this is because Melchizedek has more glory, more honor, there is more dignity associated with him than was bestowed on the priest from the tribe of Levi. So when a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, arises again, it is a great sin. It is a gross violation. It is a complete subversion and repudiation of the worship of God to fail to pay homage to this priest. In the Old Covenant, it was good and it was proper 
for the people of Israel to pay tithes to the priests from the tribe of Levi under the old covenant. And while they were kept in bondage until the coming of the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But when that high priest comes, when he is revealed, then all homage must be given to him. He must increase and all others must decrease. And anyone who is a rival to his glory and honor must be set aside. You cannot honor both Aaron and Christ as high priest. He must have the supremacy over Aaron. And what was established in Abraham must interpret the way that one views the priesthood of Aaron. For Abraham is not merely acting as a private individual. Abraham is the head of the nation. He is the root of the Jewish people. He is the patriarch of the nation. So what he is doing has significance. It has implications for what comes later. We remember in Galatians 3.17. In Galatians 3.17, this is what the apostle is saying here in relationship to the law and to the promises, to the covenant that was already nullified. Galatians 3.17 says, What I am saying is this, The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Right? This covenant God made with Abraham came before the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And it came 430 years before it. So this covenant that has already been ratified, has already been established, it cannot be invalidated, it cannot be overturned and set aside by a law that was added 430 years later. The law must be interpreted the covenant that God made with Abraham 430 years before. And that same principle applies to the priesthood. The priesthood, previously established and honored by Abraham, cannot be invalidated by a priesthood that is established 430 years later. Right? What was established in the law of Moses concerning the Levitical priesthood must be subservient to what came before it and to what is above it. And Melchizedek's superiority is clearly seen in that his priesthood was before Aaron's and in his priesthood is no way dependent upon Aaron's genealogy. He received a tithe, though he was not descended from them in terms of a genealogy. Also, his superiority of his person is seen in that he collected a tithe from Abraham. Right? That is without any dispute. Genesis 14 clearly shows that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And in this relationship between the payer of the tithe and the receiver of the tithe, who is superior? Who has the greater honor? Who has the higher rank? The one who receives is greater, is superior than the one who pays or the one who gives. And this he received from Abraham. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tithe from the one who the entire genealogy of Aaron's priesthood is dependent upon. Right? In terms of the legitimacy of Aaron and his family to serve as high priest. The first, the most important, the most crucial step that must be established in order to determine any man's legitimacy to serve as priest, as high priest under the old covenant is his connection to Abraham. 
If he is not descended from Abraham, then he's already automatically excluded. He has no right to serve as high priest. Now, there are other steps that must be established, namely that he must be from the tribe of Levi, and then that he must be from the house of Aaron. However, the first step, and the step upon which all other steps is dependent, the highest privilege begins with his connection to Abraham. Yet this one who served as priest without this connection to Abraham received a tithe from the patriarch of the entire Jewish nation. And again, we remember that he is establishing and showing, displaying the superiority of Jesus as high priest to the priest from the family of Aaron. And this he is doing by this comparison between Melchizedek and Aaron. And in this passage, in all of it, there are four persons who are present. There is Jesus Christ, there is Melchizedek, there is Abraham, and there is Aaron. And in terms of order, in in terms of the passage, from superior to inferior, Jesus Christ is supreme. He has the place of ultimate superiority, of ultimate supremacy. Then in terms of typology, Melchizedek is inferior to Jesus. But at the same time, Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Then in Abraham, Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. But in relationship to Aaron, Abraham is superior to Aaron. And then Aaron, in terms of this connection, is at the bottom of the list. Right? He is the one who is superior to all who come before him. So if Melchizedek, as a type of Christ, is inferior to Christ, and if he received a tithe from Abraham who is superior to Aaron, then what does this say about the relationship? And Well, Jesus is superior by multiple degrees of separation, by multiple degrees of splendor. There is no comparison between the dignity, the honor, the glory of Jesus Christ. It so far surpasses anything that Aaron ever possessed that they are not even comparable. It is like comparing the light of a dimly burning candle to the light of the noonday sun. The glory of the one so far outshines. The light and the heat that it gives is so far superior to the other. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He is so far superior to anything that ever came from the house. And why would anyone want a priest from Aaron's household when he can have a relationship to the personhood of Melchizedek in verse 6? Another reason for his superiority over Abraham. He blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek, Abraham, the patriarch, who is the root of the nation, one who received the promises that were the basis for all of the privileges enjoyed by the nation of Israel. Everything they had as a nation, every dignity, every honor bestowed upon them, everything that distinguished them from all of the other nations of the world, All of these things are rooted and founded upon the promises that were given to Abraham. Everything proceeds from these promises. Psalm 147 147 speaks of this nation being esteemed or risen up, rising up above all the other nations of the world. That there were privileges that God gave to them that he did not give to any other. Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20 says, He declared to Jacob his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. 
He has not dealt thus with any other nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. He has not dealt with any other nation. And what is the foundation of this distinction between Israel and between the other nations? It is the promises that were given to Abraham. This is the foundation of all of these things. Also in Romans chapter 9, there the apostle also describes the many blessings and privileges belonging to the physical descendants of Abraham. Romans 9 and verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So there, adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. All of these privileges belonged to the nation of Israel. And he includes there in Romans 9, the temple service, which also accompanied the priesthood. The priesthood and all of the service that was there in the temple in that worship of God. All of it is rooted in the promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham was taken, chosen by God, and set apart from all other men. This nation that came from him was taken, chosen, and set apart from all other nations. And all of this goes back to the promises that God established and that God gave to Abraham. Yet, after Abraham had received the first declaration of these promises. The first declaration is in Genesis chapter 12. But Genesis 14 takes place after that. After Abraham had been chosen, after he had been set apart, after he had entered into the land of promise, after he had been exalted by God in this honorable, dignified state, as the receiver of the promise, he was still blessed by Melchizedek. He was still, even after receiving the promises, he remained inferior to Melchizedek. It was not the case that this took place before he received the promises. And he was inferior in that state, but then after he received the promises, then he became greater than Melchizedek. No, Genesis 14 is after he received the promises. So even when he had received these things that set him apart and set this nation apart from all the nations of the world and set Aaron in this priesthood apart from other people of the world, after the promises upon which all of these things were founded and Abraham's reception of them, still Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And it shows that even in the promised state, Melchizedek remained here to Abraham. Verse 10. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here, the second proof of Melchizedek's superiority to Abraham is, as we said, that he blessed him. But here, he brings forward this principle, this truth, that it is without any dispute that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Everyone agrees upon this. This is a universal principle that is agreed upon. It is a law that even natural revelation tells us. Everyone knows and understands, all must acknowledge, all must acquiesce to this truth. That when blessing occurs, the lesser, 
the inferior is blessed by the greater, by the one who is superior. So Melchizedek's superiority is clearly displayed in that he blessed Abraham. If Abraham in this relationship was the greater, then Melchizedek would have bowed before him. And Abraham would have conferred a blessing upon Melchizedek. But obviously that didn't happen. Melchizedek blessed him because it is without any dispute that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Not only is this a self-evident truth, but it is also a principle clearly established and taught in the Bible in relationships that we see throughout the pages of history. Isaac blessed Jacob. Jacob blessed his 12 sons. Moses, before his death, blessed the people. In the law, the priests were to bless the people as well. We also know that just generally speaking, God is the blesser of men. God is the one who blesses men. And in all of these cases, the greater, the one who has the greater position, the greater rank, blesses the inferior. So here, another proof of Melchizedek's greatness over Aaron, and thus Jesus' greatness over Aaron as well. Now, one point of application for us to consider regarding this truth or this maxim, that without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. It should be recognized that this is a great privilege and honor, a blessing that God bestows upon us. It is a very honorable and gracious thing for God to use men as the means of communicating his blessings to others. What greater privilege can we be made partakers of than to be instruments in the hands of God for the communicating of his grace and goodness to others? This was the case in the Old Covenant with the priest. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. A part of their function and a part of their role as priest was to pronounce this blessing upon the people. Numbers 6, 22 to 27. There it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. God could have blessed his people directly without the use of the high priest. Can God not do this if he chooses? Could he not speak directly from heaven and communicate his good things and his blessings upon his people? Yet here, God established this rule or this law that he determined to use these human instruments as the means of communicating his good gifts to his people. And in so doing, he allowed Aaron and his sons to participate in the bringing about the realization of these blessings and of these good things for others. And God's kindness continues to be seen in this way. He continues even to the present day to use men as a means or source of communicating his blessings to others. And in this way, we are allowed to participate in the goodness and kindness of God, especially in two realms. First, it is the duty of Christian parents to bless their children. They should be a source of blessing unto their children. In the home, the parents, and especially the father, they have the superior position. They have the higher rank. 
And they ought to use their position and their rank of honor to bless the lesser, to bless the children who have been placed by God into their care. Parents should be a source of blessing to their children by instructing them in the gospel, in the fear and knowledge of God, by giving to them a good example of devotion to the Lord and holy living, and by praying for their little ones. Secondly, it is the duty of Christian ministers to bless the church, the duty of the shepherds to bless the flock. Right In the church context, the pastors, by way of office, have a superior position to the people and ought to use this position to be a source of blessing to those who have been entrusted to their care. They bless the people by invoking God's name upon them, by faithfully preaching the gospel to them, by rightly applying the promises of God to them, by praying for them and setting for them a good example. And in both cases, whether in the home or in the church, those who are lesser, those who receive the blessings, ought to have proper honor and regard to those who have been appointed by God as the means of communicating spiritual blessings to them. Should we spite the one appointed by God for our blessings? Children should love and honor their parents. The people should love and honor their ministers since these have been sent by God to bless them. And then in terms of the one who is blessing, those who have been appointed as the instruments to bless should take heed. They should stand in fear, lest by unfaithfulness they bring about a curse upon those to whom they ought to bless. It is a very sad and appalling thing when parents or ministers who should be a source of blessing, instead become a source of cursing for those that are placed under their care. So we ought to deal with these things in the proper way. Proper honor and respect for those who bless us and proper uh, fear and faithfulness in the one who is to bless others. Hebrews 7 verse 8. He says, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in the case one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Here, a third display of Melchizedek's supremacy over Aaron. It is from the state of life as explained in Scripture. Melchizedek is said to have lived on, while the priests from the tribe of Levi are called here mortal men. Right? In terms of receiving a tithe, there is a equality or a similarity between Melchizedek and between Aaron. Both Aaron and Melchizedek received a tithe. But in terms of their life, there is a distinction that is seen between them. He says, in this case, that is, in the case of Levi, we're talking about mortal men, dying men, those who are obnoxious to death. But in that case, in the case of Melchizedek, one received a tithe who lives on. And it is obvious that a mortal man is inferior to a man who lives on. We remember in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, in speaking of Melchizedek and how he symbolizes or is a type of Christ, he said there that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. He lives on, so his life is superior to Aaron's. Therefore, his priesthood is superior to Aaron's. Now, here we must ask, what does he mean 
that Melchizedek lives on. And it is these kinds of statements regarding Melchizedek that have led many faithful interpreters of the Bible through the years to conclude that Melchizedek is indeed Christ himself, that he is a Christophany of Christ, and certainly that is a very valid interpretation. Yet at the very least, we have to say here that he lives on is a representation of Christ, that in the person of Melchizedek, there is a symbol There is a representation of Christ in the way that he is presented in the pages of Scripture. There is no record of the beginning of his days. There is no record of the end of his life. There is no father or mother. There is no genealogy. So there is in him a symbol or a representation of the person of Jesus Christ. And for our purpose, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8, he means it in relationship to his priesthood. In that, the priesthood of Melchizedek was not bound or fixed by a period of time. His priesthood did not expire upon the establishment of the priesthood of Levi. But his priesthood lives on. He calls it a perpetual priesthood. And in this way, he is made like the Son of God. Melchizedek symbolized the eternal, everlasting priesthood of Jesus Christ that was given to him by the power of an indestructible life. And would not everyone have to conclude, would not all have to admit that a priesthood with a high priest who has everlasting life, who serves as high priest for all eternity, is much to be preferred and has far greater blessings and advantages with his priesthood for the people that he serves on behalf of than a priesthood occupied by mortal men who are prevented from continuing in their office by death. A high priest who lives on is superior to a high priest who is a mortal man. And in this way, his priesthood is greater. It is greater than that established by Aaron, and Jesus' priesthood is according to this order. Now, another point of application in relationship to these things, something for us to consider. And that is that though, again, we're dealing here with Melchizedek and with Christ and Christ, his everlastingness, his eternality, yet in Aaron, in him being a mortal man, God is still pleased in this life to use mortal men to administer his worship on earth. Aaron and his sons and the priests who came from them, all of them were mortal men. They were frail. They were weak. They were poor creatures. They were dying men who were themselves subjected to the body of death. And though they were mortal men, God established them for 1,400 years as the primary administrators of the old covenant and of the worship of God during that time even though they were mortal men. And in this way, there is a similarity or a continuity between the old and the new. For in the new covenant, the primary preachers and teachers, the primary administers of the gospel, the shepherds over the flock of God who lead them in the worship of God are also mortal men. I am a mortal man. And if God is so pleased to establish this body for many generations, there will come a day when I die and that I am no longer here serving as the pastor of this church. 
and that some other man will have that role and that responsibility. And if time continues on long enough, then that man will die as well, and it will be handed down to someone else. In each generation, God is pleased to use dying men to minister to dying men. In his wisdom and counsel, God has determined to use weak, frail, mortal, dying men in his worship, in his service, to care for his church, to proclaim and to preach his word on this earth. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 5 says, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Where are your fathers, he says? They're dead and gone because they were mortal men. And where are the prophets? They're dead and gone because they were mortal men. And God is pleased to use mortal men in the building up of his church who are equally subjected to all the infirmities and all the temptations of other believers. He uses men who are themselves subject to death just like the rest. And he does this according to his own wisdom and his own counsel and his own will. God could have accomplished his design for the church by his grace and power without the use of any human agents, without using any people. God could do it miraculously by his own word, by his own power. He could speak from heaven and preach the gospel to all men. God could have sent holy angels down from heaven to be the preachers of the gospel and those who built up his church. God could have perfected a group of men. He could have purified them from all sin and endowed them with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and faith and righteousness so that they were set apart from all, other, all others and entrusted them with the care and the building up of his church. But has God chosen to do any of these things? No. God in his wisdom has chosen to make use of poor, frail, weak, tempted, sinning, dying men. Now why? Why does God do it this way? Well, first to demonstrate his own power and that the life of the church does not rest in men, but it resides in God. When you see your ministers and you see their weaknesses, their frailties, their sins, that they are mortal men who are dying men, it ought to remind us to put all of our confidence in God and not to trust in any man. Yet it is common with men to put their hope in other men. But the Bible tells us, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And so often in many generations of the church, people hang their hopes on the men that God chooses to use. Whether those men are desiring that or not, this is so often the case. But we need to be reminded, and God does remind us through death, that the church, its power, its life, its sustenance does not rest or reside on any man. Though God may raise a man up and God may use that man preeminently in his generation, eventually that man is going to die and will the church cease to exist at the death of that man? No, it will not. It will continue on because the life of the church resides in Christ and it is his power and this is why he uses weak, frail, dying men in his service so that the power may be seen to belong to God and not to any man. Not to any man. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 7 to 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. 
It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. There, this treasure of the gospel is placed in these earthen vessels. This illustrious treasure, this beautiful treasure, is entrusted to earthen vessels, to weak, common vessels of men. And the purpose is so that the power will be of God and not for itself, so that it will be clear and evident to everyone that the building up of the church and the success of the gospel does not reside in any man, but only in God himself. A second reason why God uses poor, frail, weak, dying men. And this is so that the shepherds of the flock will have a common experience in their own being of the same condition as the people, and that they might be moved with compassion towards them so as to care for them. Do the shepherds not have a relationship to the people? Do they not have a common experience in sin, in temptation, in weakness, in frailty, in death and dying? Well, they have all of these common experiences. And if I know what it is to be tempted, and I know the difficulties of those things, and I know what it is to fail, then it also enables me, it causes me to be more compassionate, more understanding, more gracious to those who are under my care, who also are subjected to weaknesses, to frailties, from their own failures and faults as well. We remember in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, considering the high priest, that he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is beset with weaknesses. He is a weak man. He is beset with many weaknesses, so he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. He is an ignorant, misguided man who is subject to weakness. The people are ignorant and misguided and subjected to weakness. So how can he be severe with them when he himself has the same struggles? And in this way, there is this common condition between the shepherds and the flock so that there is mutual care and understanding and compassion one toward the other. And then thirdly, another reason why God subjects the ministers to a common experience is so that in the shepherds, the truth and power of the gospel and the final ultimate victory of faith might be clearly displayed. And this is true not merely with the shepherds, but this is true with all of the flock as well. Death is the final test. Death is that final trial that all of us are subjected to. Unless the Lord returns, all of us will eventually die. That is a a fact, a reality of life that all of us know to be true. All must pass through. And it is a great encouragement to the sheep, to the younger, to see their elders, to see their shepherds pass safely through the valley of the shadow of death. And to see God's faithfulness and the triumph of faith manifested in those entrusted to their care. Also, the same is true of children with their parents. It is the parents who raised their children in the fear of the Lord, who compelled them to live a life of faith, 
who compelled them to trust not in this present world, but to look for the eternal life that is in the life to come, to trust in Christ, to live by faith, right? Who tell them that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. And when the children see their parents who were believers and who practice their faith and they see them come to this great test, this great trial at the end, They see them pass through the valley of shadow of death, and yet those parents still maintain their integrity. They hold on to their faith. They do not renounce Christ, but they remain faithful, firm until the end. Is it not a confirmation to the children that the faith of the parents is a real, it is a living, it is an active faith? And it is a great encouragement of them to follow in their example so that when they come to that precipice, they already have in their parents this example of one who has passed through this valley. They made it through safely, and so I can make it through safely as well. And this is why God puts the churches together as they are. This is the danger of a church that is only young people or only old people and no mixture of them. We need both this mixture of young and old so that we have these examples of what it is to live the Christian life and to face the various trials, the various seasons that accompany the different stages of life. Hebrews 7, 9 to 10. He says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here, a fourth and final display of the superiority of Melchizedek is this. Levi and the entire priesthood that descended from him paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham is the head of the nation. He is the original root. He is the patriarch of the people. And though his descendants were not visibly, physically present when he received the promise, they were present in another sense. They were present in the sense that Abraham was their head. He was their representative. So that when Abraham received the promises... They also received the promises, just as much as if they had been visibly, physically present with him, and as much as their persons had been there, and the very promises had been given and ratified to them. And so, since Abraham's descendants were present with him, since they were in his loins, then all of his posterity, including Levi, and including the priesthood that came from Levi, Every one of them who ever served in that office under the old covenant, every single high priest, legitimate high priest that ever came from Aaron, from when it was established to when it was brought to its conclusion, every single high priest paid tithes to who? They paid it to Melchizedek. They showed that he was superior to them, that his priesthood was superior to theirs. Therefore, it is without dispute without any objection, that the priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is superior in every way to the priesthood according to the order of Aaron. And the only thing that would keep a man from preferring Jesus Christ as priest over and above the priest from the tribe of Levi is his own hard, stubborn, unbelieving heart. This is the only reason why they refuse to come to Christ and to have him serve as minister over them. 
This is the only reason why they cling so closely to the law and to the ordinances that they love and they long to these things. It is because of their unbelief and the stubbornness of their own heart. Don't take my word for it. This is what Stephen himself says concerning his own people in Acts chapter 7, 51. And so Stephen so justly said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. They resisted the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was revealed, when the Son came, when the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, came to his own people, what did they do to him? They put him to death because they were afraid that if they submitted to Christ, he would take away their nation. He would take away the temple. He would take away all the ordinances that made them and gave them their significance. And they loved the glory and honor that they received from this office more than the glory and honor that they could receive from Christ. And so they clung to these things and they put to death the son upon whom all the promises reside. Now, in closing, one last consideration for us today. And that is to consider and to think about this rule. This rule by which Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. Right? This has implications for everyone in this room today. It has implications for every man, woman, boy, and girl alive on the planet Earth today. And it has implications for everyone who has ever existed and everyone who ever will exist. And that is your covenant head. Who is your representative? Who is it that you find yourself under? Who is it that stands over the people? Because all men are either in Adam or they are in Christ. These two, Adam and Christ, they serve as the ultimate covenant heads over all men. And all men are either found in Adam or they are found in Christ. And our spiritual and eternal destiny is dependent upon who we have an interest in. Who is our father? Who is our head when we die? And if we die in Adam, we die dead in our trespasses and sins. We are under the wrath of God and we will be cast into the lake of fire. But if we die in Christ, then our sins have been forgiven. We have life and salvation and righteousness and we will enter into eternal life with him. The same principle by which Levi and Aaron paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were in the loins of Abraham, we must also be in the loins of Christ. We must have him as our father, as our head, so that we escape the wrath to come. This is what the apostle says in Romans chapter 5. The whole point of Romans 5 is to prove this reality, that there are only ultimately two heads of the human race. Either one is in Christ or one is in Adam. And one's spiritual eternal destiny is dependent upon who we have as our representative. Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. 
For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The one man's disobedience made the many sinners. The one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. But it is only those who receive the free gift of grace. Only those are in Christ. Those who are in Adam, who sinned with him, who died with him. Right In Adam, all die. And if a man remains in Adam through the course of his life, He remains dead in his trespasses and sins. God's wrath abides on him. The condemnation of death is upon him. And if he dies in that state, and he enters into the life to come in that state, in the state of Adam, then he will be condemned for all eternity. But those who are in Christ, they have died to sin, and now they live to righteousness. And just as Christ has life in himself, so he gives life to all of his children, to all of those who belong or who are in him. And so, the most important thing for any of us to establish is are we in Christ? Is Christ our head? Is he our representative? Does God relate to us on the basis of Adam's transgression or on the basis of Christ's righteousness? Everything is contingent upon this. We must believe in Christ. We must get an interest in Christ by faith in him. And so we exhort you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have believed in Christ, continue believing in him firm until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's so clearly for us. Lord, shows us that salvation can be found in no one else. Lord, we know that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one rock. There is only one cornerstone of the church. Only our Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the one who can save us from all of our sins. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, we would belong to him. Lord, we pray that there would be found within us true faith. Lord, true repentance. Lord, that we would have a true interest in him. Lord, that he would be our head and that we would be his children and that all of his blessings and all of his mercy and the grace that is found in him, Lord, that it would come down to us and that it would be bestowed upon us, Lord, resulting in eternal life. So, Lord, may this be true of us. And, Lord, we pray that you would make it true of our children as well. 
Lord, we pray that your blessings would come to them. Lord, we pray that we as their parents and as their grandparents, Lord, that we might be a source, Lord, a means by which you communicate your good things. Lord, especially this great salvation unto them. Lord, we ask that you would build up our homes in this faith. Lord, that all of our children would be children who belong to Christ. Lord, knowing that from us they have received this sin nature, and only from Christ can they receive this spiritual nature, this nature of righteousness, of salvation. Lord, we ask that you grant this to our little ones, and that, Lord, you might establish our homes and our families in this faith, and that you might communicate your blessings and your good things, Lord, for many generations. Lord, we know and we confess that we are all mortal dying men. And yet, Lord, in spite of our weaknesses, our limitations, in spite of our sins, Lord, you have chosen to be kind to us and to be gracious and merciful to us. And Lord, even though we are moving all of us every day one step closer to our death, Lord, we thank and praise you that you have been so kind as to bestow your blessings on us and to use us, Lord, as a means of preaching the gospel and, Lord, of teaching your word and establishing another generation in the faith. Lord, we pray and we ask that you might give to us, Lord, the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And that, Lord, in your wisdom and in your time, Lord, you might perfect us and conform us perfectly to the image of Christ. Lord, until that day, we pray that you give us perseverance, that you give us confidence. Lord, that we might have even greater hope and understanding of the gospel. Lord, that we might have a greater assurance of our faith. Lord, seeing that with Christ serving on our behalf, Lord, there is nothing that can, there is nothing preventing you from giving to us all of your goodness, your love, and your kindness. So, Lord, continue to bestow these things on us through our great high priest. And, Lord, we continue to draw near to you through him. And we thank you for raising him up. And, Lord, we give to Jesus Christ all glory and all praise. And we pay all of our homage to him and to him alone for your glory and for your honor. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.